What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? How do we operate in this world? How do we live for Christ and not for ourselves? I'm Carl Larcina. I'm a first-generation American, born and raised in San Francisco. Being raised Catholic, pretty much everyone around me, my friends, my parents' friends, we went to Catholic church together and going through the sacraments. It was more on the procedures, like steps going through it. When I was seven, my mother passed away. God took her away and she died of breast cancer. Growing up in that experience was, it was difficult. At a young age, how do you process that as a seven-year-old? After my mother passed away, it, it, was, it was different. My father was a single father raising three kids. I don't think he really knew what he was going to do. When I was 11, I went to an altar call at a Christian event and I felt something different. I, I wanted to have that personal relationship. And so I went up to that altar call. I gave my life to Christ. And that, that's when I came to know Jesus. I met my wife at a Giants game. And it was one of those events where they had a sponsor. And at that time, it was the Mars Rover that was uh, the big thing. Uh, she worked for NASA at that time and she was passing out pamphlets. And so I went up to her and was just asking her about the Mars Rover. You know, God has a funny way of doing things. So we met twice on the same day. And later on at the end of the game, there was a bookstore across the street there. And I met her in the travel section. And that's where we, we finally exchanged the numbers. And <laughs> in 12 months, I proposed to her and we got engaged. My wife's faith was definitely Catholic. She was born and raised in that, but she definitely wasn't practicing. Uh, as a young man too, that also scares you a little bit. You wanna make this thing work and you wanna be the best man you could be. I knew I needed Jesus to make that happen. Shortly after that, we found a church. First thing in the first Sunday service, it said, premarital classes start next week. <laughs> so we signed up. While we were engaged in getting married, my father had his own walk. My father's a great, great dad. He, he was always supportive, always doing things for us. As far as his faith goes, we didn't really have the spiritual leader or direction, what I would see like in a spiritual father. One thing that I saw when I came to this church and went on the retreats, I saw a lot of men with their fathers and I thought that was a really, that is a special thing where you have fathers that lead their sons and they're that spiritual influence. I remember seeing that and feeling jealous for that and wanting that. I asked God, can my father lead me? Can, can he show me how to read the Bible, how to live like a Christian? God, in his own gentle way, I heard him speak back to me. He was saying, Carl, you want him to lead you, but who led him? And he says, it starts with you. And from that point on, I pressed on further. I'm gonna lead my family, I'm gonna lead my children, and he's gonna be my spiritual leader, and he's gonna guide me. You, you never know when God might be using you um, in what you do. I invited my father up on the men's retreat in the way I was turning around and changing my life. Maybe he saw that. He was slowly coming to Christ himself. Later on that night, we told Pastor Mark that we want to get baptized. And uh, that's what we did. We got baptized together um, up on the men's retreat in May 2015. 
One of the things we did, we dedicated all our children to the Lord. He was able to witness that. He came to all of them. Right before I was getting baptized, he said, wait, hold on. He goes, I never gave my son to the Lord. And so I want to just pause here for a second and just dedicate him to God. Pastor Larry was there and said a little prayer for us. And we did a dedication and a baptism. <laughs> Six months later in September of that same year, my wife Pauline decided to get baptized too. And then this year, June 2019, all three of our kids were baptized and my wife got to baptize them. And when God tugs on your heart, just listen. And it's gonna require you to step out in your faith. And sometimes he'll call you to do some things that just don't make sense, at least to us. But if you just listen and obey, it could just be as simple as like, you gotta invite that guy to your small group. It may be an awkward time, it may not be, your best time, but it's God's time. And when he calls you to do it, if you want to see big things happen, just go do it. Yeah. As we jump into Esther this week in this series, that's kind of the concept that we're wrestling with is what do you do in those moments where God opens your eyes to something that needs to change and you realize that you're supposed to take action to change the world. So thank you, Carl, for uh, sharing your story with us. If you have a Bible, you can open them up to Esther chapter one. We're gonna go through 10 chapters in five weeks. And so read along at home. We are gonna cover one, one through two, eight this morning in our preaching time. So it'd be amazing if you take some time throughout the week and read through the whole book, or at least read this first chapter and a half. Next week, we'll pick up in the middle of chapter two. So keep in tabs with us there. Have you ever had a moment when you felt like God was opening your eyes to something that you had not seen before? My wife and I have been married for 16 years, and so the reason I tell you that is because this story is very, no, don't clap, I mean, you, whatever. The reason I tell you that <laughs> is because it's embarrassing how long it took this conversation to happen, 16 years. Uh, we, I think it was just a few months ago, my wife and I are sitting looking at some photos, and she kind of pauses in the photo gazing, and looks at me and she says, Danny, can I, can I ask you something? I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm an open book, right? <laughs> she said, why do you always smile like that? <laughs> I said, smile like what? What are you talking about? I have a normal smile. She's like, do you not have to get defensive? I'm like, no, 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 I'm not defensive, but I'm just wanting, I'm wanting this is how all of our conversations go. <laughs> just tell me, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? She's like, don't worry about it, but just tell me, just tell me. She said, okay, well, most people, like, they smile like, cheese, right? But, but you smile like a Muppet, like. <laughs> <laughs> why do you do that? Like, what do you mean? Why? I don't even do that. What are you talking about? And then. I look over behind us, there's this big picture of our family on the wall. That's our Christmas card. I realized this was the picture that she chose because our mouth, my mouth was the closest in that picture. And I'm like, okay, this is an outlier, right? I don't know what's happening, right? Is somebody going to pop out and say, you just got punked, right? And so I start looking through all the old photos of myself and then boom, 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 boom. It's like Muppet mania around the world, right? Around the world, that's Paris airport on the way to Africa. Like most people say cheese. I smile and it's like, oh, like, it's a green mile. What is happening here? 
I started having this existential crisis at that point. I'm like, did my parents not love me? Like, how come no one ever called me out on this? This looks ridiculous. I can't unsee it now. And and then I, I look over at the wall and I see a photo of my family and I see my mom smiling the same way. Now, this is inception level stuff here. Uh, if you go to my office, we've got this year's Christmas card photo on the wall and my mouth is closed. No, like wired shut. I can actually scroll through my photos and see the moment we had the conversation because my mouth just goes. The reason I tell you the story is not so that you can email me about my smile. The reason I tell you the story is because one of the things that we need to understand is that all of us have scenarios going on around us to which we are absolutely blind until the moment our eyes are opened to what's happening. You know what I mean? Like we all live in fishbowls is the image that I have. A fishbowl, we have that, that analogy of a fish can't see the water that it's swimming in. All of us kind of exist in our world in all of these different fishbowls, right? We've got our family fishbowl, our neighborhood fishbowl, our work fishbowl, right? This is the community fishbowl here. It's the culture that we live in. And some of us have things going on in our culture, in our fishbowl, in our homes, that anyone who ever walked into our home could see it, but we cannot because we live there. Right? It's like I remember as a kid, like I'd go out of town for a week and then I'd come home and be like, man, my house kind of smells weird. My house did not smell weird. We had a clean house, whatever. But then I started thinking like, is this the smell other people smell when they come into my house and I'm just like immune to it? That's my fishbowl. Maybe I need to change the water in this thing. The junior high camp happened last week, right? The junior hires have no idea what their cabins smell like, right? <laughs> but you walk in, Oh, you know, right? The air is green, right? There's algae on the walls. But they're just eating Starburst and peanuts and just having a great time, right? Carl tells this story this morning of growing up in a family that he said several times, hey, we were a church family. We went to church on Sundays, right? We were religious. I went to catechism. I went through all these different things, right? I had a faith in God. My dad had a faith in God. But then he meets Jesus at an older age, and all of a sudden, he starts to have his eyes open to the fact that I don't know if my family, family really gets it. Like, we go to church, we go through the motions, but it's more like rituals, like we don't really understand. And he has this burden of his eyes being opened to a new reality that his family was not as religious as he thought that they were. It's kind of like you, you might have a work culture that, that's hostile, and you might not even know it. And every once in a while, you hire a new person, and they say, have you noticed how mean everyone is around here? Like, what are you talking about? Like, everyone, they're just so snapping at each other. And there's all this undercutting. You're like, oh, no, we all love each other here. It's like, it doesn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes an act of God to open our eyes to see the, the injustice or the impurity or the hardship or the horror that's happening even right around us in our own neighborhood. As we embark on the book of Esther, one of the things that we're going to see is that the community that Esther lived in was way grosser than the community thought that it was. Uh, We get this opening image, and we'll jump in in a second, in the first chapter of Esther, where the king is trying to present this beautiful picture of a utopian society, but very quickly our eyes are opened up to the fact that it is nothing of the sort. And what we're going to wrestle with as we walk through this text and as we walk through this book for the next five weeks is, is the truth that when God opens your eyes, to something that needs to change in the world around you, 
Oftentimes, the reason he's opening your eyes is because he wants to change the world through you. And so we're going to wrestle with what it means to discover that and walk in that and not have fear around that. And so this is Esther chapter 1. If you're there, we won't read the whole thing. I've got a few different verses I'll pull out to kind of tell you the story of what's happening. Esther is set in the country of Persia. This is like the 5th century BC. A lot of the Jewish people have have returned to the homeland, back to Jerusalem, after being in uh, captivity for a long, long time. But but many of the Jews still lived up in this third place, up in Persia. And they were foreigners there. They were minorities there. They were marginalized there. They were just trying to keep their heads down in Persia and not make waves. And Esther, the main character of the story, is one of those Jewish people who was stuck in Persia and she was Far from home. The king of Persia was a man named Xerxes. And Xerxes had this complex where he wanted everyone who lived in the fishbowl of his kingdom to believe it was a beautiful, opulent, amazing place to live. And Xerxes decides to throw this six month party. And he's going to have drinks, and he's going to have food, and he's going to have uh, all the best dinnerware, right? He's going to have a palace just be opened up for everyone, from the richest to the poorest, so that they can see just how beautiful the country of Persia is and how amazing the king himself, Xerxes, is. Now, this is what we see in Esther 1, verse 4. It says, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Xerxes was on a mission to make everyone in his country feel like he was the man and that his country was a beautiful and wonderful place to live. But like we're talking about this morning with this whole fishbowl thing, we start to catch a glimpse very early on in this book that Persia was not what King Xerxes was pretending it to be. And Xerxes himself was not who he was pretending himself to be. And we see that, like I said, early on, just down here in verse 10, it says, on the seventh day, right? Seven out of 180 days in this party. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Veggie Tales makes this sound like it was some kind of like princess, like spin and twirl kind of thing. (laughs) Most commentators say that this is King Xerxes getting drunk with a bunch of his buddies in his inner court. And, And while he's on the rhythm of trying to show everyone how amazing he is because of his beautiful possessions, deciding that he's going to praise his, parade his prized possession, his wife, out in front of all his drunk buddies. And so he sends word to the harem and says, grab the queen, tell her to come down wearing nothing but her royal crown so she will be my property in front of us and we can gawk at her. Right? We read that and we're like, ew. Vashti heard that and she was like, No. No way. I'm not going down there like that. I'm not going to be an object of these men's desire. I'm not going to do any of that. She refused, which made Xerxes angry. He furiously decides, okay, we got to do something about this, this terrible woman and starts throwing this adult temper tantrum. Esther, the book of Esther tells us that the king's fury subsides But then he realizes he needs to do something. And so he goes to his kind of royal administrators there. And he says in verse 15, According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? How do we deal with this little incident? 
And his advisors come back to him and they say, well, hold on, this isn't just about Vashti. Right? They start bringing out this narrative that if, if the world hears what your wife has done to you by refusing to submit to your authority, we're going to have a problem across the country where all these wives think they could refuse their husbands. These wives will think they could do whatever they want and the women will run wild, right? So we need to keep them down. And so they say in verse 16, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. So they decided to make a law that they very judiciously send out from the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor to every city. And they say, let me tell you, Vashti is gone. Wives, do everything your husbands say. And good news, we're going to have a beauty pageant for the next queen, right? All women, come on and audition to be the new Vashti, except it wasn't a beauty pageant and it wasn't an auditionable thing. They started going in and kidnapping these young women from their towns to make them the new specimen, the new object of Xerxes' affection, and to make a spectacle of this act of defiance that Vashti had done to the king. It's gross. And we read this, and we think... How can a man like Xerxes think he can convince people their place is a beautiful country when it's this corrupt and this gross and there's this much injustice there? But at the same time, like this fishbowl concept, all of us live in these places that are dirty, that are corrupt, that are broken, where there's disunity, disharmony, injustice. And a lot of times we can't even see it. Now, some of you remember the first time that you were sitting at a family dinner as an adult and you looked around and you had this thought, I think I'm in a family of alcoholics. You've never thought about the fact how much they drink. You've never thought about the fact that people are bringing six packs to everything and they're tailgating before the memorial service, right? All that stuff, right? Never thought about the fact that, that you're hammering them down while you're having this thought, right? You never thought about any of that. You just thought, this is what my family does. We're fine, right? And, but now you've been in your new family with your new spouse, and you're coming back to Thanksgiving, and you're like, whoa! This is weird, right? Some of us have been in workplaces that seemed normal to us. And then a coworker came up and said, have you ever noticed that the leadership here seems to discriminate against women or people of color? Or against people with this degree or that degree or who didn't go to that school or have this experience or didn't have that experience or who know these types of people or who don't know these types of people. You ever notice that? You're like, no way, not here. But it's like you can't unsee it. And now you see it everywhere you go. It's almost shame-filled to think about the fact that you've existed in this place for so long and never noticed this. But somehow God brought it to your attention and now it's all that you can see. Now, there are moments in life where God opens our eyes to the fact that there is injustice, there is disunity, there is disharmony, there is inequity, there is impurity around us. And it's always a terrifying moment because in the back of our minds, we're wondering, is God showing me this because he wants me to do something about this? What can I do? And one of the disheartening things that we see even in this first chapter of Esther is that when Gross things exist in a culture. Everything in that culture will war to keep everything exactly the same. 
Right? When Vashti tries to stand up against the king's terrible behavior, all of the leaders get together, not just to punish Vashti, but Vashti, but to make a, a system of laws that will prevent women from ever having authority over their husbands in their society. So don't speak up or everything will just start nailing shut on the culture around you. So there's so much pressure that if you're the one who stands up at Thanksgiving to make a toast and says, guys, I think we have a problem with alcohol, you're going to find yourself not invited to the next Thanksgiving. But if you decide to be the whistleblower at work, not only will what you say be denied, but, it, but you'll be alienated. You'll be labeled. You'll be fired. So sometimes we see these things and it doesn't feel like an opportunity for freedom. It feels like this burden that God has laid on our hearts something that we don't know what we can do with. We catch a glimpse in all this in Esther chapter 2 of this young lady named Esther. And I, I love Esther in this book, even in this first chapter, because she is so like humble, quiet, behind the scenes. Or she doesn't come to us like she's this revolutionary. She's not a woman who's marching for injustice. She's not someone who says, put me in the palace. I'll show them a thing or two, right? Esther is understated, even as she's described. Like she's the main character of the book. The book is named Esther. Right? But when it comes to start talking about Esther, they talk about her uncle Mordecai first, and they say, oh yeah, he had a niece named Hadassah, and she was also named Esther, right? And then we finally see where she gets swept into the story in chapter 2, verse 8. It says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace. You know, the author of Esther describes Esther just kind of as this person. You know, we know that she loved God, and we knew that she was a Jewish woman, and we knew that she was Mordecai's niece, we knew that her parents were dead, but she, she just quietly is taken, she's kidnapped, she's brought to the palace. And she's the last person that we would ever expect would change the world. And yet the beautiful thing about this book, and this is what we're going to investigate over the next four weeks after this one, is the concept that God uses people like that to change the world. And I love the theme verse of the book of Esther. If you ever memorized a verse from Esther, it's this one. It's Esther 4.14. Mordecai says to Esther, And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Right, Esther is kind of going back and forth. I can't say anything. I can't stand up against this injustice. I can't do anything, right? I'll be killed for it. There's no way. Mordecai says, listen, if you refuse to act, God will bring deliverance for the Jewish people from another place. But Esther, there's a chance that you're made for this moment. Or there's a chance that you were brought into the kingdom of God. You were brought into the kingdom of Persia. The reason you're living far from home in this terrible place under oppressive conditions as a slave and a sex slave in the palace of the king, the reason behind all of that is because God has put you here because he wants to change the world through you. Now, as we start this series, if there's one thing I want to kind of emblaze in your mind in the first week, and you can write this down if you're a note taker person, it's this. If God has opened your eyes to disease in your community, it may be because he wants to change your community through you. Amen. It's not always, but it may be 
because he wants to change your community through you. If you don't step up, maybe somebody else will, but maybe you're brought into your workplace for such a time as this. Maybe you were placed in your family for such a time as this. Carl felt, you know what, I, I wish my dad would lead me to Christ, but maybe God placed me in my family so I could lead him to Christ. And then he does. And then he leads his family to Christ. Now everyone's getting baptized. This whole generation changes. Really not because of anything Carl did. Because God opened Carl's eyes to something that needed to be changed. And God said, Carl, let me use you. And he said, okay. And then God did all the work. Now, as we launch into this series, we're going to tell stories like Carl's every week. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of videos that we're going to show you like that. And we've got amazing people in our church who've had moments where they've had to stand up and exert courage. And we've asked them to write journal entries and share those journal entries with us today. Uh, Tara Hannon's going to get up in a few minutes and share with us something that she wrote about an experience in her life where God had her step out in faith and watch him move. These things that we experience sometimes we feel like just happen in Bible times, but this is everyday stuff. Right? As you walk through your life, you might start noticing the dirtiness of the water in the fishbowl in which you live. And so as you start walking through this week, and as we start walking into this series, let me give you a few things you can take away and take into your week to kind of start wrestling with these things. You can write these things down. Number one, ask God to open your eyes to the unhealth around you. I know it's a scary thing. Most of us, it's like praying for patience, right? Christians say, don't pay for, pray for patience because God's going to make you be patient. I'm not, I hate that. I feel like that's what we should do, right? We should lean into these things. God, I need more patience. God, give me opportunities to grow, right? Ask God to open your eyes to areas in the world that need change, where there's unhealth in your fishbowl, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. Just ask him. Or you have to do anything about it yet, right? Just ask him. And, and who knows, right? You might be walking down the street and you see your annoying neighbor beelining it out to talk to you. And God might give you this glimpse that maybe he's not annoying, maybe he's lonely. Maybe he doesn't know anyone. Maybe you're his best friend. You ever thought about that? And maybe the reason he beelines it out to talk to you is because you're the only person in the world he can ever talk to. You might start feeling for that guy, right? And you're like, oh, I don't want to feel this way, right? Ask God to show you where's the injustice, where's the pain in the world around you. And number two, treat those moments that information that you receive from God as a stewardship. What that means is you don't have to do anything with that, right? But if you start to get this, I think my neighbor might be lonely. The next question is, God, what do you want me to do with this? God, you've given me this burden. You've given me this information. You've given me this glimpse into my family's health or my workplace. God, what might you have me to do with this? And number three, I should read it. Number three, be open to ways God might ask you to step out in faith. Just be open to it. If it is true that God uses the esters of this world to step into injustice and see it change, be open. As we walk through this series, you might see that God opens your eyes to some things. And you might say, God, what should I do? He says, do something, right? Be open to that. But then number four, this is the most important. Uh, number four, remember that God is the one who does all the work. I think the thing that's the, the most scary about all this is it feels like a lot to change the culture of a place. And it is. One of the things that Esther, the book, gets a lot of flack for is that God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. There have been people in church history who have said, it doesn't belong in the Bible. Where's God? Right? But if you read Esther, like we're going to read Esther in this series, God is everywhere. 
Right, the whole climax of the book of Esther is when God shows up in response to prayer and fasting and changes everything. And so really the moral of the story is that Esther just kind of, it's like Indiana Jones, like takes a step of faith and then boom, God does all the work. So we cannot forget that if God is going to call you to be a change maker in your workplace, your society, your household, your family, it's not about you. He's the one who does the work. Now, the image that I got of Esther is I was thinking about her being dragged into the citadel of Susa, this walled city where the king lived. I'm kind of realizing, you know, like a castle city, it's kind of like Disneyland, but it's also kind of like a prison, right? When you get dragged in from the outside and the doors close behind you, it's like now you're on the inside. And I got this image of Esther, kind of like, remember the old story a thousand years before Esther of the Trojan horse in the Greek war? where there was this fighting that was happening. This is not the real Trojan horse. This is from a movie, right? But there was this fighting that was happening. And one side says, you know what we should do? And they have this idea. They they present this Trojan horse, this gift to their enemy. And the enemy's like looking outside the gate of the city like, what is this horse? It's like a Statue of Liberty, like, hey, right? It's a gift, right? They read the card. They didn't read the card, but they read the card like, it's from our enemy. Maybe they're making peace. I don't know, right? So they open the gates of the city. They drag in this horse, and they close the gates in case it's an ambush. And like, all right, let's go to bed, deal with this in the morning. In the middle of the night, the belly of the horse opens up, and all these soldiers start pouring out, and now they're inside the city gates, and they start slaughtering everyone, and they win the war. Yay, right? Trojan horse. You may not know that story, but you might have a Trojan horse virus on your computer, right? That's how you know it. The Trojan horse is any time that something sneaks into the inside of a closed system, the inside of a fishbowl, and destroys it from the inside out. I see Esther in this book, almost like that Trojan horse, that she feels like she's being kidnapped into this foreign city, but God says, no, 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 I'm bringing you in, not because of you, but because something's hidden within you. It's my spirit. And when you step foot into that city, when you step foot into that workplace, when you step foot into that neighborhood, you're bringing the presence of God into that place, not because of you, but because he is hidden inside of you. And at the opportune time, he will sneak out of you and spring to action and transform that place from the inside out. And when I think about the way that God works throughout human history, it's almost always this way. Even the story of Jesus, right, is God himself encapsulating himself within the womb of a human, Mary. And he steps onto our planet, coming out of the body of a woman and changes the world. I think of Jesus himself as God in human flesh, that the God of this universe did not just stand in his deity, but he added humanity and like a Trojan horse became one of us so that he could conquer sin and death on our behalf. This is how God works. And it's the same way that God works today. Jesus says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to send you my spirit. And as the spirit is in you, he will do the work to change the world around you. Which is why Jesus says, when you pray, extol the name and the holiness of God, and then ask him to bring his kingdom here as it is in heaven. The Apostle Paul says that we carry the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, our broken human bodies, to show that the all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. And so if God is opening your eyes to injustice, if God is giving you glimpses of places you might step in and get involved, don't just step in and get involved. I'm not just saying that so you can take it easy. I'm saying that because it's not going to work unless God is the one who does the heavy lifting and you're simply the agent he uses to get inside the gates of the city. 
And before Tara comes up, I want to spend a few moments and pray for us as a church as we embark on this journey together. So let's pray together, and then Tara will come up and share a little bit of her story with us. Dear God, I remember the terrifying moment that you called me to stand up against apathy. I can feel the balmy sea air and see the lavish resort in my mind like it was yesterday. Mombasa was beautiful, a haven amidst the suffering. But this wasn't what we'd signed up for when they said it was a missions trip. We hadn't come all this way to sip Mai Tais on a Kenyan beach. Surrounded by luxuries and indulgence, my best friend and I grew more frustrated every day. We were young and zealous, hungry to help your people, to meet their needs, to point them to you, Jesus. We wanted to visit the slums of Nairobi or work with impoverished single mothers, but that wasn't on this week's agenda. Louis Vuitton, lazy yachts, and lobster filled the docket. Our team was content to set evangelism aside, but you, Father, began to unsettle our hearts and change our perspective. What if these wealthy travelers mattered too? What if your heart was equally broken by their vapid souls and empty revelries? Armored in fine linen and self-sufficiency, they felt beyond our reach, but you whispered that we must try, that you were still in control. We had a powerful drama that told the story of salvation. We could play our music on the beach, and maybe a few guests would hear us over the waves and turn a languid eye to watch. We had to do something. Apathy was not an option. You told us to be brave. It was hard to convince our team, but still harder to face this crowd. They sat aloof and intimidating. They had not come here to encounter you, God. We could feel fear and insecurity creeping in, but your message had to be told. We were costumed and about to begin when the resort staff came stalking over. Our hearts sank as we prepared to be shut down. But you are so faithful. You always have a plan. Your thoughts are bigger than our thoughts. Your ways are infinitely higher. To our shock and amazement, they weren't upset. They invited us to be the evening's entertainment for the entire resort. That night, as we illuminated your story from the main stage, I marveled at your provision. Throughout the bejeweled audience, tears were flowing and hearts were being softened. You were ushering in your kingdom in the most unlikely place. There was nothing exceptional we did. We lifted up your name. We gave you our obedience and you gave us the harvest. In this season, as I waltz through my Bay Area life, with lattes and linen, with fine dining and dulled senses, would you remind me of that 19-year-old girl? She was bold and passionate. She knew souls were all that mattered. Merciful, life-giving Father, would you help me once again to stand against the insidious flow of apathy? Lord, let me be your vessel. 
come here with nothing. Would you give me new wine? The balmy winds are blowing, and the thirsty are all around. 